friends, Romans, countrymen. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to the MC Lars podcast. This is episode 48. It is Monday, July 29th. And uh, this week I've got my guitarist, bass player, tour manager, longtime friend, Mike Russo. I just played a show in Jersey, the New Jersey GamerCon. It was really cool. I got some shows coming up this September with Cuckoo Kangaroo and the Aquabats. Go to nerdcoretour.com for those dates and those tickets. And then I'm about to announce some West Coast shows in October with a surprise band. I can't announce the dates yet. I can't announce anything, but there are more shows coming. This week's episode is brought to you by the Patreon supporters. As always, shout out to some of my new supporters, Joshua, Wayne, and Ashley. Some of my old supporters, Isaac, Tommy, and Brian. Thank you all very much for your love and support. I really appreciate it. Y'all allow me to keep doing this, and you allow me to keep making music, and I appreciate you. I'm starting a new section of the show where Patreon supporters can tell an MC Lars story and get a free shirt. So stay tuned for that. So let's jump right into it. Very long episode, very good episode, interview with Mike Russo. And as many of you might know, the music business is... Sometimes the coolest thing in the world, sometimes the worst thing in the world. And having friends like Mike is something that has allowed me to keep going for so many years. Mike has given me so many opportunities. He's collaborated on so many great songs with me, such as Do the Bruce Campbell, Mike Russo Cut Your Hair, obviously. Uh, he played on the new album, 1984, the song with B. Dolan and Meg Rand from the Dewey Decibel System, which I'll play at the end of the interview. And um, it's a really cool... It's a great interview because Mike started his career working as an intermediary agent for a company called Concert Ideas, which helped schools bring acts to the campus. So he worked in this business, the side of the music business, which is like the college booking side of things, which is a huge industry that not a lot of people outside of the college world know. Bands know that colleges often pay well because they have big budgets they have to spend, and uh, it's a whole industry. But Mike talks about the brave choice he made to leave Concert Ideas to become a full-time tour manager, what it means to do right by people, and the importance of having a good reputation in the music industry, which Mike undoubtedly does. And he talks about this thing where, through the ups and downs of the music industry, what he believes is that music is as much as a community as it is about the music. And I think that's true. And that's kind of the indie DIY thing where, you know, there are most of us never, you know, become millionaires off of the music industry. Some of us are lucky enough to do this for more than a few years professionally. I'm in that category. And Mike talks about how Naps, the advent of Napster helped make music more pure, where the strange weirdos who had nothing better to do than make music kept doing it versus the people who did it because they wanted to become rich rock stars, which is interesting. So I love this interview with Mike. Mike's always been a great friend of mine. And uh, he's a very spiritual guy, and he helped give me some closure on something I'd been wrestling with for years, something that I was always kind of like, I don't know. I, I didn't have peace with it until this interview. And you'll hear, I don't want to talk too much about it, but you'll hear how like I kind of, something clicks in my brain. I'm like, you're right, Mike. You have to have a good attitude, and you have to help people because you want to, not because you expect things. And Mike is undoubtedly someone who has done that. So this is my interview with Mike Russo. My friend, my collaborator, my big bro. He was one of my groomsmen in my wedding last year, and I love him to death. Mike Russo, let's do it.
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Mike Russo. <laughs> Hi, Mike. Hey, how are you? Mike, did you cut your hair? I did. Peer pressure is a, is a powerful thing. What's the story behind that song from Lars Attacks? What's the story behind it? Yeah. How do we get to that moment? <laughs> By having unacceptable hair. <laughs> You're a metalhead. You always love metal. I did. And I was a lazy metalhead. So what that means is that I wanted to grow my hair long, but I have really thin hair. And so I grew my hair long and it looked terrible. So I wanted to say that I had long hair and I wanted to fly the metal flag. I didn't want to do anything with it, so I tied it back in a ponytail. <laughs> and I think, like, whatever the opposite of body dysmorphia is, I think when I looked in the mirror, I was like, this does not look that bad. <laughs> and then I realized later that it was atrocious. You, did you ever not wear it in a ponytail? <laughs> like, on stage? I, you know, I think if the ponytail fell out, <laughs> and then I was like, well, well, this must mean that I'm rocking particularly well. <laughs> During the show, that's right. It's like, well, I'm really, I'm really doing something here because <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Mike Russo and I met in 2006. His band, Teenage Girls, played a show with me in, I guess, fall of 2006. Yes, at U- University of Maryland. Yeah, Baltimore County. Yep. And um, you, for years, worked for a company called Concert Ideas. Yes, that booked college shows. Yes. Am I on the right path? Yes. And it was kind of like you were an agent, but you were also a curator for like, oh, this school, you might like this or. Yeah. So essentially if entertainers have agents that represent them, in a sense, our job was to act as a college or a university's representative. So in an ideal situation, you would work with the same school over the course of time and you would get to know what they're interested in and in the same way that an agent for an entertainer would try to further their career over time with the college you would try to sort of grow programs you know uh, build upon things they did before them and for a lot of colleges they were really starting from nothing so when you go see a band or an entertainer in a sort of classical venue, you know, it's they have a built-in stage. A lot of time they have built-in sound and lights. They, you mean like a club or a theater? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, have, they have a thing that's preset that you're always going into and sort of the, the entertainers have to adjust themselves to the building. But in a college's sense, by and large – you know, 90% of these shows were held in a field house or a gym or a space that was never... Cafeteria. Des- yeah, a space that was never designed to, you know, uh, really do anything uh, entertainment related. And so you were kind of starting from scratch. And a lot of times you're also dealing with students who are excited but have no experience. And so, you know, they want to do an event... And they have an idea of what they want to do, but they don't necessarily have the means to get there. And so you would help them sort of see, um, well, what's available for the kind of thing we're trying to do. And then, you know, well, how do we build 
a working venue out of a gym. Mm. Well, you got to bring a stage in. You got to bring a generator in for power. You have to um, set up ticketing. You have to figure out how people. So you would help get... them with that. Yeah, you would wow. sort of act everything so that when so that the the band or the comic or the whomever could feel like we can come and do a show here and feel confident that it is going to if not be exactly like playing a traditional theater or something we can approximate and that the audience who would go would not be constantly reminded that they were in a space that was not designed for that. And so you guys, this concert ideas, they know, Oh, if they've booked it, they're going to make sure when we show up as a performer, it's going to be like a professional. Exactly. And because, you know, so many schools are doing things for the first time or they don't understand the, idiosyncrasies of, 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 you know, contracts and things that from a college's perspective, everything could be very black and white and a contract read very literally. And in the more entertainment side of things, the contract was there almost more as a formality. Right. And a lot of it was more handshake, which is very antithetical to what most colleges would do. And so the the act could look at it and say, well, this is a college we've never worked at before. You know, colleges a lot of a lot of people looked at colleges as a way to make money, but it wasn't like going to further your career. You know, like Rolling Stone was not going to come to the University of Ware in Iowa and cover the show. You know, it was it was sort of a means to an end. So if they had somebody, as opposed to an act talking to 400 colleges, uh-huh. they could find one of what I was called a middle agency. They could talk to a handful of us who would represent many schools. Okay. And then there would that let – in the same way that like when you're in a band, mm-hmm. when you're going to a place, if you've worked with that promoter before and you go back or even if it's like, well, it's a new venue, but I've worked with this promoter and they've always been good to us. Uh-huh. Then you can feel like there's like a comfort when you walk in the door. You're not coming in feeling apprehensive. You come in and you're like, okay, I recognize you. You know, so you would be often day of show at these shows. Yeah, and actually, the day of show was really enjoyable to me. I thought the day of show was was super fun. But you, so you're a badass musician. Oh, thank. If I can be very honest, (laughs) so you're you've always been. I wonder. It's a lot of what you just described sounds so boring and like stifling. Logistics sound cool, but like yeah. having to reassure agents and managers and routing and ugh, it sounds like not the worst job in the music industry, but definitely yeah. not like. Well, it takes it takes something that probably has a a more pure love to it, like music. Like I just love music. I love playing music. I love being around musicians. I love being around the setting of, of these events. Yeah. And it took something like that, that at the time seemed when I started seemed kind of mystical and it turned it into something that was very mundane. You saw how they made the sausage. You see how they make the sausage and you start to not only that, but you start to then think about, well, how do we sell this sausage or, right. you know, is this it, sausage going to recoup the cost they put into it? Yeah. Or like, well, if one thing doesn't work, but we just want to make sure that they're booking something, you know, it becomes, there's, there's an aspect to it. There are two aspects to it. One is 
working with a college that you have a long history with and you are able to, over time, craft a program that becomes increasingly interesting. And right. that um, that's really satisfying. And there's actually a creative aspect to it. There is some creation to that. So being like, yo, you can afford these artists, this artist, I'll help you get them. And you know, every year for the spring concert, oh, Concert Ideas is going to recommend the cool, interesting thing in my price range. Yeah, and some people actually had goals. You know, some schools had goals. For example, um, there was a college in Grantham, Pennsylvania that you were at before, Messiah College. And for a long time, they never did secular shows. They decided they wanted to broaden the things that were available for their students to see. And so I helped them book their first ever at least major secular show, which at the time was Wilco. And this was probably in, geez, I don't know, 2003. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember talking to the director at the school who was a salaried employee who then had students helping him run the shows under him. And I said, well, you know, if you're getting into this, like, what's your goal? Like, what do you... What do you want to do over the course of time? And, you know, and their idea was, well, if we're going to bring in secular acts, we want to make sure that whoever we bring in has an interesting viewpoint, has something cool to say, offers some variety. And then he said, well, you know, in my pipe dream, if I could book anybody, it would be Bob Dylan. You know. And so it's like with that structure, mm-hmm. you could actually look at both the short term of like, okay, well, here's a concert coming up and, and this is what we need for two months from now. And then mm-hmm. you can look at the long term. Well, how does this fit in, in a larger scale? And I felt really proud of the fact that we kept trying different things. And I was very into indie music at the time. Right. And they were one of the few colleges that did a lot of bands that I just liked. you know. And so it was a chance to then also on the selfish – musician side of me see these great shows yeah it it got to to and not only see them but seeing how the sausage is made in certain ways is unbelievably interesting we played there with me without you yes yeah and that was awesome yeah and so that also let me see all these different bands or comedians or whomever but mostly bands and see well how did they run their operations you right. know, and and seeing that behind the scenes as a musician was super fascinating. And so you got to build relationships with managers and agents and bands, and and so it was kind of a cool. Nowadays, you've really great reputation. People know you. I hope, so. especially I mean, in the Northeast. Yeah, I, I I hope so. I always tried to do right by people, and I guess that side of it was really enjoyable. You know, the chance to be able to say, "Well, I was a part of doing gigs with." Again, at the time, it was like. Messiah, for example. Well, the first thing that I felt proud of was was within three years we actually did did get Bob Dylan to their school. So this oh. guy's like goal, uh, Jeff, who was there, it was a super sweetheart, and it was just like man, when those things worked, and they did, you know, the Decemberists and Rilo Kiley and Iron and Wine, and they were doing things that for the time at colleges were very unique, the national bands that became very very big, right, and um. 
that was a big point of pride and it felt like, hey, we're on a team together in the same way that being a band in a band is like, hey, we're all on this team together. We're all doing this thing together. You felt like there was – you were really a part of something and it felt good. But like any job, that one example is not enough to make a living off of. And so there was another aspect of my job which was very sales-oriented. And that was, well, okay, we work with these colleges. We don't work with these other ones. So we have to go try to find these other colleges and try to convince them to work with us. And, and to book your acts. Yeah, and it and that part started to feel like... And then didn't that, they ramp that up? They did ramp it up. And it was... You know, when I started at Concert Ideas... So, so let's I, go back. How did you get involved with them? Because had you worked... Like, had they worked with your college and... So school? yeah, so... It's interesting, and it all kind of—it's all kind of part of the, the the same story for me in one way or another. Is that music for me was probably just as much about community as it was about the actual actual nuts and bolts of what music is. So, when I went to college, uh, I started college in the fall of 1995, and I went to a school that was. Far enough from where I was from home that I couldn't go home. I didn't really know anybody. And what I school? Went, it was uh, Indiana U of Pennsylvania. Okay, where we also played many years later. Right. Um, the infamous T Pain story. Oh, uh, <laughs> right. Um, and uh, so when you, you know, I got somewhere. This is this was you know, if anybody had internet at all, it was dial up. Most people didn't have computers. Nobody had cell phones. Mm-hmm. So when you got to a place, it was a school. It was a decent sized school. It was like sixteen thousand students. I didn't know anybody aside from it's my. Kind of small, I guess. Well, it, it uh, depends how you look at it. Sixteen thousand. I'm sorry. I 16, thought you said sixteen hundred. Yeah, yeah, sixteen thousand. Sixteen thousand so, is huge. So it's like it's like a mid range school. It's not like it's a big. Yeah, yeah. And when you don't know anybody, and you don't even know where to start. At, you know, at 18 years old, it's also like, well, you know, what am I even interested in? Who am I? Mm. It was cool because I was going into a new place. You know, after high school, you come into college, you have no reputation, you have nothing established. You get to kind of start from scratch. Except your cool hair. That was not helping me. So I was, I mean, I'm already starting at a deficit. Because <laughs> right. if you think my hair was bad in, you know, the mid 2000s, it was really bad in the mid, uh, mid 1990s. Um, so I picked up a student newspaper and they said that they were looking for um, people who might be interested in working uh, with – they called it the entertainment network. It was basically the, the – it was, it was the group in, on campus that brought in entertainers to campus. Okay. And I was just lucky in that the school that I went to did a lot of stuff and they gave the students – maybe more responsibility than they should have. Okay. So I got, I worked my way up from booking acts in like our local coffee shop, Mm -hmm. like singer songwriter, people like that. And then we had an 800 seat ballroom and we also had a 1600 seat theater. But with this ballroom, they gave me a budget and they said like, as long as you stick within this budget and as long as you get people to come to the shows, enough people that, you're not losing money. Mm-hmm. 
then you can kind of book whatever you want. Mm. And at that range and at that time, MTV was still really big. A band could have like one song and could suddenly draw, but they'd be affordable enough in a college sense. How long would that last if a band had like a hit buzz clip? It could last as little as one semester <laughs> uh-huh. or it could last as long as, you know, a whole career. You know, the the joke with colleges was that you saw people on their way up and then you saw people on their way down. Right. You know, some people kept going up and up and up and up forever. Um, and, you know, I mean, when, when I was in college, we had Dave Matthews and we had, right. you know, people who at the time were new uh-huh. and we watched them ascend. And then you would have people who were on their way down or you had a couple classic acts. I mean, we... You know, because of that autonomy and because I had such a weird taste in music, right? you know, I booked things that were unusual for colleges. So what did you book th- for this? Um, so I, you know, over the three or four years that I was there in this ballroom, booked Run DMC. Holler. Um, Biohazard, <laughs> like Static X, Seven Dust, like these really heavy bands, Vanilla Ice. Um, when he did his comeback? Yeah, or? when he did his comeback, his, his, his new metal comeback where he was like rap metal. Right. Like when Korn was bigger this time. Right, also. right. Um, you know, we did like the Wallflowers, Helmet. Um, it was stuff that was, you know, we almost did ICP. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't know if almost counts, but it would like it kind of counted. And at the end, I was like, I can't do this to my college, you know, right. Like, that could be the end of our programming forever. <laughs> and then at the same time, I was able to work with the theater and with the theater was able to be a part of larger shows like, well, like Buster Rhymes, Chris Rock, mm-hmm. Tori Amos. Um, I'm sure I'm going to forget a bunch, but over, over four years, I was able to do about 40 concerts. So then did you apply to concert ideas when you graduated or? So yeah, we worked with them off and on through it. Uh And so I saw what their role was. And for me, it was like, I just talked to this magical group and they could just somehow tell me whether or not somebody was available and how much they cost and all this kind of stuff. And this is early years internet. Yeah. So nobody was at this time. The only way you could find out how to get in contact with a band or an entertainer that you were interested in Uh is you had to actually subscribe to an industry publication and it cost hundreds of dollars what a year to do. It was called Polestar. Okay. And it was like they had a guide. And it tells you who's drawing what. It, tell, it well, still does, I well, guess. Well, there's, there's, there's the Polestar Weekly Guide, which shows you like concert reports, which is actually a big, um, a big pet peeve of mine because there are some – nowadays there are these like really lazy articles that get posted. Like have you been online and be like – do you want to know how much Ariana Grande makes at a concert? Or sure. Do you want to know how much? We'll tell you how much they make because we'll show you the concert reports, and they'll show you how many tickets sold are uh, how many tickets were sold and what the gross is, and people just assume that whatever the gross That's is, the act is home. walking with no commissions, yeah, no or no, no, yeah, no expenses, no, no deals, no anything. And and the truth is, I mean, on some super large scale bands, you know. If Metallica's grossing X amount of money, they are probably walking with most of it. There was a time, I'm told, with Dave Matthews that he could actually make 110% of the gross because they sold so much concessions and parking and things for venues that they made their money even by giving them more than all the money they sold for the tickets. But in general, you know, you look at that and – 
so there's that end of Polestar, but then Polestar also had the the concert agency guide and the concert management guide. And it was just a list of bands and names of who represented them. Right. Which was still a big barrier because even if you got the name, didn't mean anybody was going to call you back, didn't mean anybody was going to give you the time. So the concert day. ideas really facilitated this. They did because we worked with like 250 colleges with like Jeez. 400 shows a year. So for 10 years at 4,000 shows. So was this in a way when you graduated, it was like kind of a dream job, at least theoretically? It, I had a very rose-colored glasses view of what this job must what be. What did you major in? Communications media. Okay. Which is, which is like That's cool. bagging groceries 101. <laughs> I mean, one of my friends literally just went from our major to going to a grocery store. And know? then you were also playing <laughs> with your band Teenage Girls, yes. right? So it was my first time playing, really playing in a band. And you guys did well, right? You'd sell a lot of tickets. Because at the time in colleges, you know, frats and, and, and places like that, they still hired live bands. Mm-hmm. And some of them were cover bands and some of them did their own stuff. And we did our own stuff. But it was, it was, you were lucky. I mean, you could, now we never saw any money. Mm-hmm. And they would charge, but they would charge at the door. They'd have a keg. You'd play until the keg was kicked. Right. And then everybody just lost interest. But you could do three, four, five hundred people at these places. Right. And our, our own campus entertainment group, the one that I worked for, would also put on local campus shows and we could do those as well. And it was I mean, there was a cool ecosystem. There was probably at any given time you had like five or six bands that were totally different. Uh-huh. On campus bands. On, on campus bands, and they all could draw their own people. They could all you know your inner little petty rivalries you had like a whole a whole little ecosystem of stuff going on because there was no instagram to like find nothing to distract you like you really if you wanted to go out you had to go out and i'm i feel really fortunate that i'm old enough that i remember the time before the internet and before cell phones. Right. And I can also appreciate what it brings to it after the fact. But I'm so glad there was no social media in college and high, or high school. God, you know, or middle school. Or you always like used that. to say music used to really drive the culture and now technology does. We in our conversations you've you've made that point and it's a I think it's a good point. Yeah, and well and and I mean, you know, music and art have always been commercial. But there was a time when or at least it appeared that there was a time mm-hmm. that people looked to musicians to say things that had some weight to them. And, you know, in a larger industry sense, I think the reason that a lot of times bands could do that was because they could still sell records. And when that all kind of went away, when really making money off album sales went away, then a lot of your bigger acts started turning to just like essentially corporate sponsorship for their money. And the moment you take dollar one from that, you are censoring what you say Uh, uh, from there on out. So let's go back. So you're saying that because a band would, a buzz clip band would go gold generally. I read that recently. Yeah. Therefore their platform was monetized by the corporations. So do you think it was people were perceiving that they had something important to say, or it was just positioned to be like, these people are the prophets of your generation? Well, I think it was more like, you know, NWA, they get by on controversy. 
and and they're saying something that nobody's really heard before, uh, giving right. giving a giving an aspect of culture that most people didn't get. If NWA can make enough money selling albums because that controversy sells albums, then they don't need Seven Up as a sponsor. Let's encourage this controversy. Yeah, exactly. Like in that sense, then the more interesting or provocative or whatever you are, then that's what makes people want to hear you. When that goes away, the moment that you can't get by on selling records, then you need to figure out if you're going to become a full-time musician, you need to be making money from somewhere. So you monetize your brand. Because nobody can stay on the road 365 days a year to make enough money to support everything going on. So if you're at, you know, the other thing that has kind of gone away with the advent of YouTube and the death of labels is that it takes a while to get good. And you're, right. you're basically not allowed to you, – like there's no safe time for you to suck anymore. Like almost every major band, when they started out, if you see videos of them starting out, even if they had a label deal, a lot of them are like, they're all right. Well, you're saying that there's eyes on everyone for the there's, whole from career. The, yeah, from the beginning. You, there's no safe way. And it can be discouraging. It can be super discouraging. And something I often talk – a phrase I often use on this podcast is proprietary algorithms, right? Okay. So like like these, if you look at this Thunderbolt cable for recording, it's like yeah. proprietary to this technology. Yes. So you have an ag- algorithm which makes it so the brand of this label or this monetized like – major label thing makes it look like this thing that happened organically that developed. Actually you're seeing because it's like the switch of net neutrality. You're it's getting more easily streamed because it comes to the top of your YouTube recommendations. Yes. Your Spotify recommendations. Yes. So it's like brands are monetized because they become part of this club that, that it's weird because it feels indie and it feels yeah, like I use the net neutrality term because it's really not neutral. And net yeah. neutrality is what people use that term because it means it becomes not neutral. Well, and, and what's interesting too is that, you know, the the implication, both the upside and the downside to decentralized media and the fact that anybody can do it is that just because anybody can do it doesn't mean they necessarily have anything to offer. And... There was a time that, I mean, you know, record labels in, in the music industry and the entertainment industry has always, um, they've always padded musicians or entertainers who weren't quite as good with like studio musicians or whatever. But by and large, back in the day, uh-huh. and certainly on indie labels, the only way you could do it is if you could really do it. You had to be able to play. You had to be able to write. You had to be able to do these things. Interestingly, in the 90s, I think you really had to because when you had bands like Nirvana and you had mm-hmm. this kind of underground rock thing come up, I mean, there was nobody writing for these guys. They were doing it themselves and people were responding to the connection of like genuine emotion and genuine message that was coming from these folks. Right. That gets lost. And then when you get to a level where um, anybody just anybody can put out anything at any time – but you haven't necessarily, I don't know if paid the dues is the right thing, but you haven't taken the time to really develop yourself, then 
what comes out is a little more vacuous. And then you get more and more people who are just are just trying to be famous for the sake of being famous. Right. Well, and it's easier to do that now than it used to be. Yeah, there's a there's a paint by numbers platform for how you can become like trending. Yeah. And I think it's weird, man, because it's like as dudes and me in my my 30s and you in your early 40s like you don't want to become the old man being like music now sucks. But yeah. if you were to look at the top 10 now and the top 10 in 98. Oh yeah, there's no context. Or what year is it? 2019, jeez. The top 10 in 2019. The songs, I don't know. You, I, I like those songs more, but that's also because I was younger when I remember. Uh, yeah, in a way, I All almost kind of or whatever. Smash Mouth. You know, I remember when that came out. My sister was like, "I don't like this song. It's not very good, but it's going to be a hit." And she was right. Yeah, I kind of feel like we're moving at the moment. We're moving to like. I could be wrong about this, but my my feeling is we're moving to like what the fifties were, singles based. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and most of it had very little weight to it. It took the Beatles to – it literally took the Beatles to create albums. Nobody yeah. cared about albums before the Beatles. Oh, that's interesting. The Beatles took it, made the long-form album in art form, and uh-huh. that started a whole – it's going to take the next that, whatever it is, to pull people away from and, – and the singles-based thing is not bad, and the streaming thing is not bad, but because of it, it just took – in the same way that when there was radio and very few record players, you know, you didn't need to buy a single. You could just listen to it on the radio. Here, streaming is the same thing. The Beatles right. gave you a reason to want a whole album and gave you a reason to want to take something that you really had to digest and pour over and do things. We're going to need another one of those. And it will eventually happen. an entity like that. Some kind of act. Somebody's got to come along who's going to inspire that. Right. You and know, it could move it back. You know, everything – everybody always has, you know, says like a genre is done. Like how many people have talked about the death of rock forever and forever. And then the one act of- comes along uh-huh. and changes it and everybody's like, it's back. You know, sure, it's like sure, sure. it just takes one act to do whatever with. Or people are like, oh, hip-hop gets stale until the right one comes along. And everybody, yeah, or something. And then everybody changes their mind and goes, oh, there is something here. You know, it, it, which is interesting because – the music industry and therefore all media industries can do nothing more than follow. They can't create and they can't as much as they would love uh-huh. to be able to set trends and as much as they would love to be able to dictate those things because then they could easily make money off of it. They can't. They still, at the end of the day, the genesis has to be with the artist. Well, they do two things. They disseminate and they amplify. Yes. And, you know, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I, you probably did. I'm a, such a big Nirvana fan. Yeah. Nirvana was, like, you mentioned them earlier. You talked about how there's something that was a sea change. Yes. And that was the indie underground punk rock fuse, fusing with metal being like, okay, Guns N' Roses, you're done. This yeah. is the next generation. And Axl Rose didn't appreciate them, right? No. Like, they definitely, they, they feuded and, but- if it weren't for dissemination and amplification in the music industry, they ha- Nirvana had a woman at MTV who really pushed to get them on Teen Spirit on high rotation. Yeah. And he had the melodies and it was like everything was set for this sea change. Yes. There was limited options. You turn on MTV then, it was Green Jello, it was Guns yeah. N' Roses, it was Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah. And maybe you get like a, a classic Weird Al video. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, Nirvana was going to stand out. So maybe, what, are you, what about like 
there are these bands like what Greta Van Fleet and all these mm-hmm. rock bands who are like kind of revival acts who are doing albums. Yeah. But we're as humans, we're programmed so differently than we were 30 years ago yeah. to appreciate and let music drive the culture and drive us in a way that it did back then. So maybe it's something like a nuclear war or, I mean, not to be too dark, something that just to change. Maybe we all say, I'm done with Facebook. I'm done with international like shadow governments <laughs> running our yeah. democracy. I'm yeah. done with Twitter. John, uh, interview I just did with him, he talked about how he erased the social media. Yeah. What's going to become a revolution when we're all so distracted by these these androids creating proprietary music? Like I said, to trend, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Well, hey, we're one we're one good solar flare away from the electricity all going away. So you know what do you what do you do then? Right. Um, what I think is interesting is that you know it's. Um, I think it's funny when the internet first came out, it was like, there's so much choice. There's so much options who can keep track of this, who can possibly, but then it all settles out and it's like, but what is there really? There's Netflix, right? There's Amazon, right? There's like, yeah, there's like four or five things. It's kind of becoming network TV again, you know? And it's like, if you want to stream radio, Spotify's whatever they put on their playlist is your mainstream radio. And so it's funny. It's like in the same way that, podcasts come out it's like well anybody can make a podcast now but look at the top podcasts who are they made by people who are already established entertainers or like npr or people who have these skills to tell stories and they're using this new media yeah they're using the new media to their advantage but you still need to bring some level of like you've put time and energy into this thing and so I think the most difficult thing for a new act is just accepting that it just takes time. Mm-hmm. And just because you see things in the same way that when we were younger, you would see a one hit wonder band come out and be like, oh, well, they just came out of nowhere without knowing the whole backstory. And that was people, a lot of people's reaction to Smells Like Teen Spirit because yes. people hadn't bought Bleach. Yeah. Well, another thing about that was interesting was that, you know, to the way the industry views something and the way people view something are two totally different things. The industry is so insular, it's so like snake eating its tail that it thinks, again, it thinks it's in charge, it thinks it runs everything, but without the talent, it has nothing. It's the same argument against Spotify. It's like, well, you, you have to accept streaming's here and it's a thing. And it's like, well, we do, but at the same time, it's amplification and dissemination. Yeah. What are you streaming? You right, know, like you right, still need right. you still need, you know, it's gross to just call it content, but you still need something to stream. And so, you know, when I was a kid in 1991 and I was in ninth grade and I was just starting to play guitar, it was like that was such a fascinating year between ninety one and ninety two. Mm-hmm. You had Black Album had just come Black out. Black Album. You had a the month last, later. Never mind. Never mind comes out. You had yeah. the last Michael Jackson album came out. You had just like all of these. The last great Michael Jackson. Yeah, album. the last. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, the and the not not one. to say we we endorse his legacy, but that record, Dangerous, was his last great record. It, it, in terms of like, yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, like character aside. But in terms of things that had an impact on culture and Simpsons sing the blues, it just right. come out. <laughs> well, and, and it's like, you know, as a 
being in just starting high school, uh-huh. like I didn't care about any of those things. I just knew that on the radio, I could listen to these different kinds of songs and they all had some kind of resonance to me. They all impacted me, mm-hmm. you know, and I could listen to, um, Michael Jackson's black and white. And I could listen to, uh, November rain by guns and roses. And mm-hmm. I could listen to smells like teen spirit. I remember it's, it's like that weird thing. I remember exactly where I was the first time I heard teen spirit. Where were you? Like I was in a car in a parking lot outside of a, a pharmacy uh-huh. in our mall. My mom was inside shopping and I was just sitting there listening to the radio and it came on and I was like, what is this? And I didn't even know if I liked it, but it just like it, there was a feeling that came with it that, you know, because I was in a, from a small town in Pennsylvania, you know, I, I never heard the Pixies. I never heard any of the right. bands that influenced Nirvana. So to me, the Melvins, the quiet, loud thing and all that was like a brand new feeling. Super quiet verse. Yeah. Gigantic chorus. You know, that was like that template, which has now been super played out. Right. But at the time felt revolutionary um, before it felt obvious. Uh, like that just had an effect on me. And I didn't view – I remember for my birthday, my 17th birthday – the two CDs I asked for, one was Candlebox, right, and the other was In Tombs Wolverine Blues, like the heaviest death metal oh, CD gosh. I could think of at the yeah. time, and then like the goofiest like MTV radio thing. But it it none of that mattered to me. It what just was felt Candlebox's like music. hit? Uh, 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 far behind. Leave you far behind, yes. but yeah. I did it. Yeah, that album does not hold up. They're very they're very Nirvana <laughs> influenced. The, yeah, exactly. Did they predate Nirvana or no? No, no. But, okay. but but it was it did not take long for you know, that was a period of time when I was a student um and I was booking concerts. Uh-huh. I remember we had this tour, it was an MTV sponsored tour. The headliner was was Garbage, uh-huh. Shirley Manson, and Butch Vig, you know, the producer. Right. And who produced Never mind. Never mind. And uh the opener was lit. Oh god. And um at the time, I remember thinking like, oh, man, Lit's going to be great and Garbage is going to be terrible. And I, I, I remember I, I was a student. I stepped on the bus and they're like, oh, man, our, our album just went platinum because of like their one song. And they got on stage and they were awful. I mean, they just they hadn't learned how to be a band yet. And they, they were Is that ter- I'm staring at the ceiling or that's oh, sleeping with my clothes on. Yeah, sleeping exactly. with my clothes yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, my, you yeah. You all getting a taste of my nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, but like at the time, you know, one song on MTV could sell you a million records and that could, that could, depending on what kind of deal you had, that could set you up with enough money to really make a, you know, make a living off of. And yeah. And Brendan, who was one of the first podcast guests with Teenage Dirtbag, especially internationally, the bottom of sick condo in Brooklyn. Yeah. View of the Manhattan skyline because he had a hit internationally. Yeah. And so that, what that did was that took people who were creative and they looked at that and was like music, something I want to pursue because I'm creative and you can make money at it. And then post Napster, when that went away, people go, Hmm, tech is an area I can make money in. And they just leave <laughs> that. Drove the culture. That's right. And so then music is left to the rest of us who were just like socially awkward and music uh-huh. moved us in, in a certain way. It, it, that doesn't mean that 
And I think what that means is that you lose the provocative voices and you just get way more like emotional voices. <laughs> Disappointed voices. Yeah. You this know. is interesting because it goes back to – this has been a resonant thing. I'm saying amplification and dissemination. Mm-hmm. You get into the business that then amplifies ideas and disseminates ideas. Yeah. And, and over time, to get back to your original question, over time – over 10 years and 4,000 shows of dealing with music as a commodity uh-huh. got really became a bummer. You worked on 4,000 shows with Concert Ideas? 400 shows a year for 10 years. Oh so, gosh, I mean, I it wasn't Mike. directly involved, but I mean, we were all involved in some way or another in all of those shows. It was a super small company. There was only six of us. So, meanwhile, your bandmate Bob had given you The Graduate, right? Yes. So... While I was playing in my college band, which which it's interesting. So there's there's a larger story here that's actually really fascinating. Well, I guess that's not for me to decide. But what <laughs> it's is for interesting, the listeners to decide? But Mike, you're a very fun, interesting guy, so I think they'll find it. Seeing seeing that whole thing, there were a lot of bands when I was in college that time period. There were a lot of bands trying to get that label deal chasing major labels. So let me, can I ask you a question about something you said earlier? Yes. So the chasing major labels, you said when it became less about labels, giving a platform for someone's voice Mm -hmm. and more about like their being underwritten by a bigger brand. Yes. What were examples of that? And maybe this ties into what you were saying. Um, Well, here's one example uh, referencing Rob's podcast. Look, a cartel band in a bubble feeling like a brand, Alliance was going to make them the legit. moment anybody writes you a check, it's no different than what politics or anything. The moment somebody writes you a check, uh-huh. there's a transaction going on. Money is given to you with the expectation of something at the other end of it. Okay, so what if it's an edgy guy at David Geffen's label who thinks that, oh, I'll give a chance on this small indie band from Aberdeen? What's well, the transaction there? The gamble that they'll make that money back? Well, and no label ever. Uh-huh. Has just been like, just do whatever you want. We have a whole A&R department here. They are in the business of, you know, they, at the time when the labels were were big, in the same way that there was a period of time when agents felt they were more important than their acts. Okay. They would say, I see you have talent, but really you need us to help you figure out how to get to the next level. Like, what you need the is not night. just exposure. Uh-huh. What you need is not just us getting your stuff out there. You really need our input. We know what makes a hit. We, we have, know what. We have the key to this gate that yeah. we've locked. And we think that because we have had success in the past, we think that success is because of us, not because of the creatives that came before you. And so nobody who's signed to a major label ever wasn't messed with on some level. True. That's why Butch Vig made a glossy record that Kurt later was like, oh, it's so glossy, but but secretly liked it. Exactly. But I mean, but it's like, that's what, so everybody got molded. Okay. So you're saying that. Or worse. Right. Or shelved. Yeah. Like if you got, so what's an example of other than the cartel, like in the vacuum that, that led post Napster, like your goal became to write a song to license to Apple or. Like, well, it could be. I mean, if there was a while there that if you were on an iPod ad, Feist. Gold record. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she comes out of Broken Social Scene, this indie band. She has this song that would be a novelty under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. 
gets put on front of an iPod commercial in the absence of MTV, a 30 second clip with one song was about as good mm-hmm. as you were going to get. Right. That, I mean, did it create your career? No, but it gave you a, it gave you a bump that like you're always, everybody's always angling for an advantage. It's like these tech startups that are setting themselves up because they're hoping to get bought. Right. You know what I mean? It's like they don't, what they're creating is almost, they just need a good enough idea to get bought and then have somebody take it and actually do something with it. Right, right. That's a weird goal. When the platform was no longer NWA talking about police brutality being worthy of itself, the platform then began, became, please give me a platform because I want people to hear me. Yeah. And, th- and you're saying that kind of sucked some of the agency out of yeah, me. Yeah, and that's what turned it into like, I was like the, like in the 50s, like, Right. You know, there was there was good music in the 50s absolutely, but what was on the radio? When you look back to like stations like that, there wasn't a lot that was really going to move you. You know, it was it was basic catchy melodies and it was kind of inane lyrics and it was not unlike a lot of what's going on now. Right. Would you say and the most provocative thing was like Elvis's sexuality? Yeah. But even right. then it was like he was co-opting a whole other right. kind of music, you know what I mean? It was still they were taking something that had a pureness to it and they were making it in a way that could sell things. And he was as much a part of the game as anybody. I mean, cause why else do you go and make 80 movies? Right. You know, they say, and they say his movie <laughs> deals is what sucked the life out of his yeah, music. Absolutely. So you're saying, so around the time, so you heard, you heard the graduate, but you're saying bands were all chasing major label. deals. Yeah. And so uh, the short answer, the reason I'm saying that is because I was in a band that at the time was trying to do the same thing. And we were going through the motions of working with a producer in Philadelphia who had a track record. He had a couple bands that it's funny whenever you get into this, then all these people fill this vacuum. So this was a guy who said, well, I'm not an A&R for a label, but what I do is I take bands and I get them to the point that I can give them to an A&R to label. So who had he made? What successful things um, had he done? Well, he did uh, the roots is when things fall apart. Okay. He did um, silver tide. Uh, who's a band out of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Brian Weaver, who played bass for Terrible Things uh-huh. when we were yeah. on Warp Tour. I remember him. He yeah. was in that band. Um, this band uh, called Hailstorm, that is um, like a like a, a he- super a, heavy. They're a heavy band, yeah. yeah. And at the time, in my old band, they're from they were I think they're from Harrisburg. We played show. My old band played shows with them. And at the time, she was like sixteen and a killer singer. I mean, her she was incredible. Right. So it was um, like. It was maybe a tenuous though promise. It was, it was, signed. and and he wanted a lot of money for it. Yeah. And in the same way that I was a middle agent that created a, a a link between musicians and colleges, this guy was like, "Well, I'll be that link between musicians and labels." You know, Atlantic Records likes me. They think I bring them things that are interesting, and so I'm a gatekeeper. And so not only can I get them to you? But like all labels, I can get them to you if you let me do the thing you I hire do, me to do with record. you. So I, so he came in and Were you also working at concert ideas. At yes. This time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was still playing. I, I played in bands. Oh, you were just, busy, bro. I was, I was burning the candle yeah. uh, at both ends, but what he would do is he came in and, and I think that we had a band at the time that was actually gaining some notoriety 
and we were doing Teenage okay. Girls. Yeah, we were doing all right, you know, in the in the in the Pennsylvania and Philadelphia and you had area. Open for like Bloodhound Gang and Nerf Herder and stuff, or is that um, no? That was that was a show I did at college. They got canceled. Uh, it got shut down. Too rowdy. which is different. Yeah. Okay. It got canceled in progress. <laughs> I, I brought that up because I'm, I know you told us during we had Perry Grip on. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, that's funny. Um, and uh, what he did was he was basically like, "Well, you guys are a fun band, and and yeah, you're good. People are taking notice, but you're you're missing something that's going to really be able to make you major label ready." And what you're, you know, essentially what he's saying is what you're missing is me. And, but what he did was, although on some level he was helpful, he was like, you know, your rhythm section's sloppy and all this. His solution to that was, well, let's bring in a studio drummer. Let's bring in a studio bass right. player. And he essentially sucked the personality out of the band and took what was special about us, which was the four of our personalities. Sure. He took away half of those. And what we were left with were songs that were, technically better but we're missing i mean from my personal opinion we're missing that thing and the reason i feel like that opinion is not necessarily invalid is because then as i watched that happen our audience started going away because we weren't doing you were too we weren't we weren't doing our thing our way so you know it's kind of like man it's like those situations with these gatekeeper producer types it's like Come join our cult because we you're okay, but we'll make you great. And meanwhile, it destroys your soul to be boiled alive in yeah. a bathtub for leaving Scientology. And, and, and they can change their mind at any moment. And then what do you do? You know, that when, sounds familiar. When they're like, "Hey, why don't you join us?" And then you do, and they're like, oh, "Never mind." And you're like, "Well, I just did. I just gave up all this for you." You know, um, right? I just sold my house so you could talk to Zenu. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then, so then, Mike, you. So what? So so so, so the yeah. reason about that. So, so I was stuck in a mentality. Eventually, what happened with this guy was that it got to the point that he was like, "Okay, you guys are almost ready. I'm just talk about numbers. How much did you give him?" Or well, here's here's the thing. Yeah, we had give we had paid per song. I don't know what like a grand or something like that. And then he goes so much. He's like, "I I, I think you guys are finally ready." Now our band, that's two people. You're finally ready to move on to... Wait, how did you fire the other people? You just said guys were the real talent. Uh, you know, he, he, he got in our heads and was like, well, you know, they just... You guys are good, but they just can't hang. They just, did you just sing too? No. No. But you wrote a lot of songs with Bob. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so he was like, are you really ready? I think now you're finally ready to make the demo that we can sell to a label. I just need $20,000. For what? For being uh, exactly, you know what I mean, and and so that was the point at which it was like, as well, okay, I, I guess we're not doing that. Twenty thousand. What what would he say it's for? For his production, for his production, for him being. But had a you already paid him to produce the music? Well, this was like we were going to make maybe a, maybe an album's worth of stuff, whereas before we had done like three songs. And realistically, what year was this? Is like early two thousands? Yeah, this you would have like been probably, lucky to get. 40 grand advance from a major label. Yeah. I mean, if anything, if you know? that, yeah. And at the time though, you know, I mean, I made okay money at my job and I just took mm. any money I made and I just poured it into this thing. It's the racket dude. And it's infuriating because it's like these freaking, these scumbags make money off of our dreams and our hopes. And so anyway, to like, I'm always, like I said, always a fan of destroying the gatekeepers and just yeah. doing it yourself. Well, and that's the thing. So I was, I was stuck. Mate, this story makes me mad, dude. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't thrilling to me either. Yeah. Um, but I was stuck in this mentality of, 
well, this is how you do it. Because it's the only way I had seen it from his, from the moment that I started even thinking about, well, what's behind a concert? What makes a band? What Like the moment I got into college until that moment, I thought, well, this is it. This was my chance. If, if there was one other label signed. thing that had happened in, in the past that, that fell through too, it was like, if we can't do it this way, there's no way to do it. And then, and as an aside, though, the reason why the roots are huge is not because of this guy. It's because oh, these yeah, dudes are phenomenal. Black Thought is one of the greatest rappers of all time. Quest Love is a genius. Yeah. But this guy had his name attached to a to a to a Grammy, you know, and so he used that. Mm. He used that, and you know, I guess he was so don't hate the player, hate the game right, kind of thing. He's you trying know. to make his living. I, you know, in, in retrospect. In retrospect, we didn't know where to go next, and we did need direction. We didn't have a manager. We didn't have an agent. We were just fumbling along while also working day jobs and all this stuff. Sure. So, But what's, what's fortuitous about this is that I really thought, well, I guess that's it. Like We, we tried, but mm-hmm. this is the only route that's going to that's gonna get me to this place. And then literally, as that was happening, my friend Bob, who was the singer – had given me a copy of The Graduate. And honestly, it sat in my car for a while. Like, well, how did he discover it? Just, I don't remember. Okay. I, I, you know, there was a time when there was, I, I think what it might have been was he lived right next to a college uh-huh. and their radio station got all these albums sent to them. Okay. You know, and you know, you knew a couple of people that worked at the radio station and you could just raid their collection because they got so much more than they were ever going to play or they got multiple copies of things yeah. or there was one or what some of them would do. There was a pawn shop next door and a lot of them would take those CDs and just sell them to the pawn shop. And if you went to the pawn shop and I have a lot of fond memories of this, you could go sit down. It was hundreds of CDs in zero order. There was no genre. There was just a pile of CDs. But if you were willing to sit and sift through them, because so many of them came from the radio station, there's some winners, you could find probably. some great. I mean, we found some. You know, my taste skewed indie at that time. I uh-huh. found some incredible bands that had the like, you know, property of Wilkes Radio right, written right. on it. So Bob was like, um, he had found me. He's like, check I, this out. Some, yeah, exactly. And at the time, you know, he was giving me recommendations, all kinds of stuff, and I was, you know. I was driving back and forth between where he lived and where I did so we could play gigs. Uh-huh. And, but you were then, in upstate New York and he was in Philly? He was in uh, Wilkes-Barre, which is like north of Philadelphia by- That's far, uh, right? It was like a two and a half, three hour drive. Ugh. I drove pretty fast at the time. <laughs> um, and um, so it just kind of sat there with a pile of other stuff. And I got stuck in a traffic jam. There was uh-huh. like some construction- and when I was stuck there, I was like, ah, well, what, I'll put the CD in, you know, my Discman that was connected to the tape that you put wow. into the tape deck. And, um, and it was like, whoa, what is this? Like, wow, this is pretty great. And I, I really, like 21 Concepts Thanks, got me. Thanks, Mike. That's whoa. sweet. <laughs> That's sweet. And, and I, you know, Bob had been raving about it. Like, oh, you're really going to like this? It's, it's, it's really clever. It's really funny. And... um I was like, this is cool. And then Space Game is the one that got me uh, for all the references and just right. for the sound of it. I think it's like track eight. It's pretty deep. Yeah, I, I, I had time. I was sitting there. And uh, Rap Girl got me and mm. Space Game got me and 21 Concepts got me. The guitar solo sample, that was the guy from Me Without You, right? 
No, not me with you. I'm sorry. Men, women, uh, children. Men, women, children. Jay for men, women, yeah, children. Yeah, that I like. I just Mugarby. That was his name. Man, I loved that, and it was just like that is so cool. It was like a mixture of like the medley kind of stuff I liked plus hip hop, which I did like, but was very ignorant of. Well, when we later bonded, it turned out we were both huge ICP fans. Yes, and I guess Bob was too. Or is. yeah, he introduced me to ICP. So okay, so my old band covered Cotton Candy. So, oh God! So, so no. So, uh, so between you listening to the graduate in traffic and then us meeting and playing the show, how long was that? Because that was it was come out in March, and I met you like September. It was not very long. So, I went. There was a period of time, like you mentioned on Rob's interview. There's a period of time when. As my job was only so interesting, mm-hmm. I was there were things that I would try to pursue on my own just for my own interest and edification. And the way I looked at it was because I had access to these contacts, right? because I had some base familiarity with a lot of agents and a very few amount of managers, mm-hmm. that I could ask basic questions and actually have somebody answer me. And so I really, really liked The Graduate. And I got to work and I was like, who reps this guy? Right. And it was not obvious from the CD. And I, I looked up in Polestar at the time. You mean who was my agent? Yeah. Or, 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 or yeah, who, who, right. like, who could I get in contact with if I wanted to get in touch with you? And at the time, Polestar listed an agent that I reached out to. And he's like, oh, I'm no longer his agent. So Paul Buck? Yeah. He's like, but... You can um I have his manager's number if you uh-huh. want if you want to hit him up. And so I did. I, I, I got a hold of Tom. Right. And Tom was super sweet. He talked to me for like an hour. Like long enough that the other people at work were like, Don't you have like something to do today? And I was like, eh, don't worry about that. Right. Um so I started talking to him and <laughs> he's Tom said something to me that day that is as true today as it was okay. in two thousand six. He goes, You know, Lars just has his personality where anybody that meets him just wants to do stuff for him. <laughs> He's like so friendly. People like him so much. They just want to try to help him. And well, I was like, sweet. well, I think I, I think I want to do that too. And I was just fascinated. I was like, I, I so nice. My, <laughs> I appreciate true. that. And I was like, I want to find a way to meet you. And the tools at my disposal were, a little conflict of interesty, but the way that I looked at it was I really thought that I was dealing with something that's legitimately cool and that is different and that has like real potential to it. So let me ask you, so you'd been thinking about like to get signed and everything. It's, you have to go through a traditional old school A&R method and you're like, here's a dude who produced the majority of this on his own. Yeah. And here's something that is coming from a totally different place in his dorm room. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so although at the time I didn't know that, yeah. Um, so what I thought at my disposal was like, well, what can I do? I was like, well, maybe, you know, of course my agent sense is like, well, maybe I can throw money at this. So I don't have any money. Maybe I can convince this college that I work with that I, that I had built a program with over the years uh-huh. and who's, who the director there was really great. And they were open to this show. They were, I, I said, you know, I mean, a lot of times we were doing these big field house shows uh-huh. and I said, well, do you have like, do you have like a small space that uh-huh. you can do like a smaller show with? And she's like, well, what do you want to do? 
and I mentioned you, and I kind of slid my band in underneath it. I was like, well, it's a package. <laughs> did she know you played in that band? Um, I did. I, I told her openly. I was like, okay. I, I didn't lie to her. Right, but, right, right. But she, but at that point, we were, we were like, we were more than just professional acquaintances. We were like friends, kind of. So I felt like I could go to her and be like, look. This is a thing of mine, but basically what I was saying was, but the professional side of me is like, I wouldn't sell you something that was just garbage. And she like, had gotten press. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, I was like, look, this is something that's pretty cool. And I was looking at it as like, here's an excuse to try to, to meet you and just to kind of just be closer to, I mean, cause at that time I had in a very short amount of time, I listened to that CD a lot <laughs> over and over and over again. And it's like a had lot you of music. Discovered like. the laptop EP or no? Did you I don't know, know I if I even, I, I didn't know there was another CD. Yeah. I just, this is what, but then, then Tom like sent me this big folder of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, press clippings, you know, at mm. the time there was, it was just like a Xerox, physical folder. Yeah. Like a physical folder with all these Xerox That's articles gangster. and stuff. That's it was gangster. great. And, you know, and the agent side of me was like, oh, this is great. I can get quick answers. And he's like, man, if you can give us this much money, we'll just say yes. You know, I was like, oh, well, cool. Um, and so, it was, it was, it was like oddly selfish of me to want to try to do this. Right. But I f- still felt like that there was something, I guess with a lot of relationships, I feel like, I feel like in any good relationship, everybody should be getting something out of the deal. Right. And whatever that something is, is, is up to whomever that is. But that like, Certainly, the older that I get, now I 100% feel this way, but I feel like almost every relationship in a perfect world should be symbiotic. You know, no, it's, it's not one side is getting something and somebody else is getting nothing, right. which is, of course, like the record label version of it. But this was like very much, you know, it's like I, I'm hoping that if I'm getting something out of this experience, that whomever I'm dealing with is getting something too, because the um, hoping for acceptance or hoping to share a moment with people that I, I like side of me wants to make sure that they walk out of this thing too, being like, Oh, this was really cool. So I thought, well, you know, UMBC is a great school. We do a ton of stuff. Right. Um, they had a space that sounded like it was ideal. It was like, well, look, you know, we can probably get 50 to hundred people out. And it's like, you know, it has its own little sound system and all this I was like, man, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want. Yeah. And so the show did okay. Right. It did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there were, there were people there. And know? then well, I remember we hung out after and, we kept in touch, and I guess I, yeah, I didn't realize that you were so intimately familiar with that record. I just knew yeah. that you wanted to do work with me, and yeah, we got to the point where there was a show opening for Aquabats in Coney Island. Our guitarist couldn't make it, and yes. I knew you knew the songs, and I knew you were a good musician. So I asked you, Mike, will you come down and play this show? Yeah, and right? I was in New Hampshire. You New called, Hampshire? You called me the night before. That would have been, and that would have been... Uh, five months after this about. yeah yeah because we had because i i had started trying to get you on other shows as support yeah and i which i appreciated yeah and it was fun for me and again it was like i got something out of it but i knew we got to hang out yeah but i knew like look i'm not i'm i'm i'm, I'm bringing something that it was so rare that we booked acts at my job that I was actually passionate about. It was right. so rare that I was like, Mike, man, this, this is really cool. This podcast is so nice. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> um, and so it was like, well, here's something I actually, like, it's exciting to me. I think this is cool. It feels new. It feels different. And, and anybody I was playing it for is like, this is great. 
They were like they were responding to it. So it felt it was like, different, and it is. But especially then, it was people weren't doing that kind of hip hop stuff with a band with that punky vibe that wasn't rap metal. Yeah, well, you know, you know, it was it's aesthetically very Limp Bizkit esque, but with kind of a quirkier indie. There was enough that wasn't exactly well, and this was still, you know, for as much as Metallica was like. A, a, a really seminal influence on me at the time the musician take on Napster was like you took all our money you took away you know they looked at Napster as like the evil enemy and my take was and hey, your take was the total opposite because the ma- network were using like new media connections and mm-hmm. yeah we didn't need a label yeah so that was like that this is fun. a new thing. Right. And to hear a musician being like, hey, just download it. People really resonate with that because everybody was downloading stuff. And so maybe it made people feel like not as guilty. But here's a guy who's just like, eh, take it. Who cares? Well, and I think there was, there was some, <laughs> I think part of the reason why that song was a hit in Australia was because people knew Lars Ulrich was kind of like anti Napster. And here's MC Lars. They yeah. almost felt like it was a parody of him. <laughs> yeah, that's people funny. I would have never thought that. That was some of the press I did down there with that. People were like, wondering that but here's the rap alter ego who secretly wants you to take all this yeah. stuff <laughs> yeah and so we and so we ended up doing this stuff with aquabats and then you'd book shows where you'd play with us and then eventually warp tour came along yeah. and, and i know this is fast forwarding where i asked you to play and tour manage us yeah and you knew you could then leave concert ideas because you were going to make enough that summer right yeah well what it i basically felt like I knew that I was ending the amount of time. After being somewhere for 10 years, you start to say to yourself, well, I'm either going to do this forever or I got to make a change. Right. And it was coming to the point that like, if you work a job that's built on relationships over 10 years, that's going to be about a period of time where people you started working with start leaving their jobs. A lot of changeover is coming. The internet was becoming way more pervasive. You guys were less necessary then because people were directly contacting agents or or people felt that we were less necessary because Uh they were doing that. And it was, and so because of that, the knee jerk reaction from the company was, we need to try to sell harder. And the sales portion of the job was my least favorite thing. And I will never forget this quote where, where the, the head of the company was essentially like, look, booking bands is like selling cereal. If people want cornflakes and cornflakes isn't available, just sell them lucky charms. And it was like, I don't want to do this. If people want, <laughs> if people want corn and corn aren't available, sell them little flip. That's right. <laughs> and it was like, that is, there were a lot of people who did that job who just, again, it was a job that had the potential for a lot of money. And they looked at music almost with like disdain. And they were just like, oh, all these acts suck. And you know, they're you all, you know what? You know, go ahead. No, I was going to say like, that's something that sours me about hanging out with agents and managers because they just want to talk about why things are failing. Yeah. <laughs> there's a funny quote in, have you seen uh, pop star, the lonely Island movie? No. <laughs> so there's a funny scene where Andy Samberg's talking to his manager and he plays this guy, Connor, who's like a pop star. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about this metal band that played an arena and he go, and the manager goes, 
I forget what the band's called. I think they're called like Life Church or something. And, uh-huh. and the, man, the manager goes, he's trying to make his client feel better. He's like, I didn't even sell at the arena. And he goes, oh, nobody sells at the arena. And Andy Samberg goes, yeah, Life Church did last week. And the guy's like, that's true, but things are changing. And Andy's like, you know what? You're right. We're doing okay. It's not a big deal. We didn't sell at the arena. And the manager goes, yeah, but Life Church did it last week. <laughs> so it's like, they're going, yeah. he's like... <laughs> They're just making just, each other feel bad yeah. relative to these things that are these breakfast cereal commodities that are selling well. Yeah. It's toxic, toxic dude. It's talk super a, toxic. Talk, and when you don't have a, a stable platform, then you're like wanting, stressing out what brands are helping you identify yourself. Yeah. What's trending. Well, and that's, you know, the one, the one thing that I, well, I learned a lot of things from my job, but one thing that was interesting to me in a negotiating sense was that you were always in the best position to negotiate if you either genuinely felt like or portrayed the fact that you basically had nothing to lose or that you didn't really care about the outcome. You sure, know, if you great. seemed like you really wanted this thing to happen, there was an odd desperation to it that became either like to an agent like blood in the water or it just became off-putting. It was like, well... You know, if you're trying so hard to make this thing happen, then then something about it must be wrong. Well, that's the and, whole thing about punk success is that you don't you're not desperate because you know what you're doing is dope. Yeah, well, and and that was a thing that when bands had record when when bands were selling records and they made serious passive income off of that record thing, they didn't have to take everything that was given to them because. They could say, you know, I don't want to be in a stupid Nike ad. Like, what is the, you know, what what's the benefit of that? I don't need, I don't need, you know, to, to they can be selective. I don't need Pepsi. I don't need this because I sell enough records on my own. What's a little bit more money? It, 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 I'd rather have my artistic freedom. But when you take away that source of passive income, then suddenly people are like, I need money. If I'm going to continue doing this, I need money. And an artist that kind of tipped the aesthetic trend of that Moby's play record where every song was licensed. Yes. Like in 99 or whatever, Napster was killing sales, even though he sold 10 million copies or something. Yeah, so he's fine. There were people that were on the one side of it that made it through, but it it made it increasingly difficult to say, well, what it made it impossible for career development because if you didn't have a label, the only reason, in the same way that you joked with Rob that like, you know, the fact that network could help you out financially was because they had heavy hitters like Avril Lavigne and Sarah and, and, and yeah, new. and those under them, the labels, that was their attitude too. It was like, look, we can develop you over a couple albums because it doesn't matter if you don't sell anything in the beginning, because we have these other acts that are bringing in so much revenue right. that we can take a chance on developing something over a course of time. Well, that, that, so what that did was Napster didn't just cut off the legs of people who were already making money. It, put a dam up in front of the bands who needed to develop and needed some kind of money to be able to give that time to get a record or two out uh-huh. and, and, and maybe make a few misses on their way to making their hits. That all went away because there was no umbrella. And so then it's like, well, who makes money selling something that can give us money, but isn't dependent on our record sales. And over time that became things like t-shirts t-shirts or soft drinks or okay. technology companies or here's somebody that they want they they like something you're doing and they can give you money because ultimately your success doesn't really affect them one way or the other but so when that's who's giving you your money then you're you know they're holding to them yeah they're gatekeepers so 
Oh, that's interesting. And then the backside is, so what is your amplification and dissemination channels? MySpace then. MySpace then, or some kind of word of mouth thing. But like, you know, know, Facebook's a great example. In the very beginning of Facebook, people had incredible reach and they could make a real dent. And then the moment Facebook changed their business model in like 2011 and started wanting to make money off ads and then started taking all of these business pages and saying, well, you know what? We're going to limit your reach unless you pay us. The moment that happened, then that platform became dead. And so I think there's a real, and the same thing's going to happen or is happening to YouTube. And there's a real danger in chasing. Instagram, Snapchat is happening with that. There's a super, there's a danger in chasing the, the media, the type of media. I think that, what seems to prove itself time and time again, although it's not a guarantee, is like if you come up with something great, uh-huh. then the media will react to it. Again, all they can do is react. They don't create anything. Uh-huh. So if you create something great, podcasts wouldn't have taken off if somebody hadn't created something great first. Uh-huh. So if you have something that's genuinely worthwhile, worry about how it's going to be distributed after the fact. Don't think about, I think a problem with a lot of today's things is like people are setting up their YouTube channels and they're, they're, they're getting their social media platform in order before they even have anything worth seeing or hearing or even caring about. It's a delicate balance. You want to make sure your thumbnails look good and your brand is good. Yeah. But the cart is so far in front of the horse. Sure. That it's like, hey, look at this really slick nothing. And whereas I kind of feel like, and, and, and also the other, the other side of that is for a lot of artistic people that are overwhelmed or afraid of like, oh God, I don't know how to do this. Sure. I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to become a, a content horse manager. Like I just want to make my stuff. It's like, just yeah. make your stuff and then try to find people who can help you figure out what media is available at this moment, but don't chase the, you know, to anybody who's basing their future on like, I'm going to go be an Instagram influencer. Well, guess what? In another two years, that may be nothing. That is the, the, everything's going to move on. Sure. You know, everybody's I, yeah. like, I'm going yeah. all in on Netflix. Yeah. Well, once Disney does their streaming thing, then maybe Netflix gets cut in half. It's like anything, anybody that's, that's basing their career on with a media that exists now is it, it, it's there's too many variables. You're way better off making something that somebody cares about. And then people being like, you know, this thing you'd make that is really cool. That would work pretty well on a podcast. You kind of have to be aware and then be ready for what's changing. And so fungible nature, right? Yeah. And so I guess in a sense, whereas in the label days, people were just like, this is going to be an avenue to make money. Mm -hmm. Now what you have to be able to do, I think not that I know anything, but it appears that what you have to be able to do is you have to be comfortable with making something essentially in a vacuum with no profit potential to start. You just have to make it because you love it. You have to make it because th- there's a drive for you to make it. And that's why platforms like uh, Patreon and Kickstarter are godsends. Yeah, but exactly. It's like, but again, your Patreon doesn't mean anything if you don't have anything worth hearing or seeing or being a part of. And I try to keep, you know, tie in with helping with the pot promoting the podcast, but doing songs that people want to hear. And when, you know, I just, I can't phone it in. They have to be, every song has to be amazing. Yeah. And so it's like, 
Shout out you, to my Patreon supporters. Yes. Patreon.com slash Of, of which Lars. I am one. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Um, you get my 10 bucks a month. Thank uh, you, Mike. But, I, but, you know, rather than being like, I'm going to set up a Patreon page so I can become a musician. It's like, no. Become a musician and then when the next, you might be ready and like, I finally have this thing. And somebody's like, hey, guess what? This new thing just came out yesterday. Maybe it would be perfect for this thing that you spent years developing. Yeah. I feel like that's right. what we're losing a little bit. People are looking at Instagram and thinking like, well, if I could become an influencer, which is maybe like the grossest term I could possibly yeah. imagine anybody wanting to do. But looking at that and being like, well, if I can do that, then I'm just going to right from the beginning – I'm going to try to become that. And it's like, well, no, you know, again, when you look at the top podcasts, you look at the top, you know, even when you look at like the top Netflix things, it's like, these are all still produced by the same gatekeepers. Right. It's like, they're always, well, that's what they call their gatekeepers because they always build the strongest gates. And that's their, that's their platform. Yeah, It's like who owns all the clean energy patents, the oil companies, like, you know, they they want to be involved. (laughs) Well, and then it becomes, like you always say, I love this philosophy. You always said, what's exciting is what's next. Yes. During all this time, I wanted to talk about this story. So sure. we were doing shows and I was getting, I was figuring out the band and I was figuring out the setup. And there was briefly a period where the band consisted of my friend DJ mm-hmm. and another friend from college who made beats and rapped a little bit and produced a, a woman who was a few years younger who I brought on some shows and was like, mm-hmm. Mike, let's help this person out however we can. And let's see what we can do. Do you, do you know any managers? Do you know anyone who can help this person go yeah. from making mixtapes and playing locally on, at Stanford to getting more heard? Mm-hmm. And uh, this, what was her name? Well, K-Fly. Right. Christine. <clears throat> I, I distinctly remember a day that DJ called me with her on the phone. Uh-huh. And it was like, hey, if we want to try to get into this college world, well, one, why do we want to get in the college world? Probably because you had shown a lot of like, hey, this is a way to be financially sustainable and, and to get in front of audiences that you couldn't get in front of any other way. You couldn't just be like, hey, I'm from San Francisco. Hey, Slims, can I just hop on this show? They're going to be like, well, no. you know. Right. But it's like, hey, USF, can I, can I go? It's like, well, you have a better route of getting on a large show at a college than you do – a local going a traditional, yeah, exactly, and so it, it it takes some of the uphill battle, and it cuts it down a little bit. So I'd linked you with them, yeah, and 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 Christine was great. Like yeah. she was she was super smart. She was really talented at the time. Her showstopper was that she had this ever speeding up rap where it would start with a drum beat and she would start rapping over it and the beat would keep getting faster and faster and right, faster right, right. to the point that she was really flying. And so you could take, I could take anybody, whether they liked rap or not, and be like, watch this for 30 seconds. And right. By the end of the 30 seconds, they were like, this is amazing. Right. And they were interested. Right. And so this was happening at the exact same moment that Concert Ideas was attempting to see if we could start bringing smaller colleges into our mix by offering them up acts that we thought were good and that were uh, that had something really cool to offer, but that were not for schools that just couldn't afford 
the big names, right, right. but still had a program and they wanted to do things. And we were hoping that over time we could open doors with these or maybe we could book a million shows with them. And in the, in, in the long run, that didn't work. But what it did was it basically gave the job, gave me the thumbs up to like, hey, why don't you pursue this thing even though it's not really going to bring in much income? And it let me utilize – utilize is the wrong word. It let me work with everybody at the company – to say like, well, look, we have these, you know, at the time, I think it was like five acts. We have these five acts. If you have a school that's looking to have an opener or if you have a school that is just looking for a smaller thing for a program, these are the five that we are just, that we are going to push. Yeah. And so we actually signed agreements with them and we said, you're going to be an exclusive college rep and all this stuff. And, and she was one of them. She was. And of all the acts that we had, she was the one that just knocked people over the most. Right. They were just like, this is, it was so cool. It right. was really great. And she was developing her live show. And like you, she was unique enough that you could put her on in all different kinds of situations and she would work really well. And so, you know, suddenly schools, who were doing like larger hip hop shows where these were not tours. They were not traveling with support. They wanted somebody yeah. to open the gig who was going to be cool. The students were going to like was going to be zero maintenance. And, you know, even though the, the headliner didn't really care who the opener was, wasn't going to make them go, you know, well, that was bad. So she at the time it was just her. So it's mm -hmm. like, look, you, we need travel and hotel for one person. It's like two input, uh, from her mixer into the house. It was like, this is as easy a production as you right, can do. Right. And she had, I mean, she had some super chutzpah because she was going up there alone uh -huh. and like playing to these huge audiences for people who had very mixed expectations and she could do this thing. And by the end, I mean, you know, like, look, everybody has shows that are better than others, but uh -huh. by and large, she was hitting more wins than she, than she wasn't. And, um, and it was a cool thing and it was like, oh man, this is really, there's something to this. And at the time, um, there were a very few amount of agents or agent assistants or managers that I was just becoming like friends with at the time. AOL instant messenger was still popular uh -huh. and you would kind of while away the days just chatting with people. And right. one of the people that I would chat with was named Seth and he had worked at a booking agency called creative artist agency CAA. And he had left there for similar reasons to why I was about to leave my job. Mm -hmm. He didn't like the atmosphere. He didn't like the hard sell of it. We were like commiserating with each other on this stuff. And he yeah. left for a, a management company called foundations that at the time had like dispatch and Owl city. And uh, they might've had passion pit. Like they had a couple really big bands and he went there and was like excellent at his job. But he was starting to be like, I kind of want to branch out. I kind of want to do something on my own. And at the time I was just sending her stuff to people because I just thought it was cool. Mm -hmm. And I sent it to him and he was like, I want to manage her. And I was like, well, she needs a manager. <laughs> you know, he's like, I, I really want to manage her. I want to like leave my job and manage her. I was like, dude, you are like, Seth is it's to this day one of the nicest people I ever met. And there, he just was capable. Right, like, right, right. He could come up with ideas and times that I flirted with the idea of like, would I want to be a manager? 
But then I would see him come up with ideas and, 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 and make connections happen in ways that mystified me. And I was just like, well, man, this is as good. If they like each other, this is as good a pairing as any. And it was really awesome to see it because it was, it's, it's a whole story about major labels and agents. And, yeah. and he helped her navigate and find the sound that everybody liked and just kind of come into her own and, and hopefully again, do the same thing, get to the point where you can make the thing you want to make without feeling like you're being directed by gatekeepers who have no business telling you what to make. Right. And Seth was seemed appeared to be very protective of that. And that's what builds long-term artists. But she went through so much, so many ups and downs and so much rigmarole and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, and a, a lesson in that that is a lesson that I think that you have taught me many times over is that those who make it are the ones that just don't stop. quit. Right. You because don't stop. everybody is guaranteed to have ups and everybody is – well, no. Not everybody's guaranteed to have ups. <laughs> everybody's guaranteed to have downs. Right. And a few of us get ups. And if you made it up once, you can do it again. But I remember there was a, a great podcast with Louis Anderson, uh-huh. the comedian. And he had said that he always looked at – um he looked at Hollywood or the, you know, the entertainment industry in his sense is everybody was just waiting on one line, waiting for their turn. And sometimes people would be there and they'd be almost there and then they'd step out of line. Sure, yeah. And then once they step out of line, they never come back. And what I, what I definitely believe has been proven time and time again is that you can never, you can't pick your luck. Right. You can't pick your moment, but you can be ready for your moment. Right. And if, if you are ready for that moment when it comes, then with all the other faded factors or not, something can really happen. Um, but it just takes, it seems like it takes a patience and, a, and, and just like a willingness to almost in a meditative way, be able to sit with the uncertainty. The uncertain, yeah. Just in being the dead relationship, how to be able to be, comfortable sitting and like not the knowing poverty. what's going to happen next. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately that's what makes a real artist. That's like, true. Can you do that? You know, it's always, it was always like a, it was interesting for me because I think it's worth discussing. Okay. That when I, when I brought her in the mix and took Kayfley under my arm, I always felt like when I brought her to you and DJ, it was like, I wanted us always to be like a group, like yeah. black eyed peas or something like MC Lars and K-Flay would be a duo. And yeah. I always felt like that became the decision that, oh, well, it's better, better off without you. And, yeah. and we don't need, you don't, it doesn't need to be a duo, but thanks for giving me the connections, whether well, it be DJ or you or anything. And I think it's sad that she and I don't really work together or, or not really in touch. It's not her fault, but I always, that was my impetus for bringing her to you to yeah. get us gigs together. And, and we yeah. did a couple. We did a few. With Pitbull and with Snoop Dogg yeah, and yeah. some others. But, and, and you know what? It's interesting because I, I have something very specific to add to this. Yeah. In that when I was getting ready to leave my job, I was also kind of hoping for a similar thing. So I was thinking like, well, hey, Seth. Hey, Christine. You know. As you are becoming bigger, and since we have this relationship together, 
then maybe I could become your tour manager. Then maybe I can go out on the, on the, on the road with you because it seems like we get along well together. And I remember the first time, you know, we'd been talking about, I, I would have, I had been talking about it. Maybe they hadn't been replying. And Mm -hmm. I remember the first time Seth was like, I think Christine really wants to have a woman tour manager. She wants to have a woman on the road with her. And it's like, that's, I can't fault that. Sure. You know, but then I started to realize it was like, okay, you know, there's the level of which I'm doing things because I believe in them and I'm also doing things on a, a slightly selfish level. And maybe that was a period of time when my selfish level actually got in the way of what the right outcome was supposed to be. And Seth as the manager saw that and made it. And although it was difficult for me to see her suddenly becoming something and me being like, well, Hey, take me with you. Right. Then being like, but is that, but like, but should they like, is that really similar in a similar way? When I left my job Mm -hmm. and I was like, okay, I'm all in on MC Lars. Like this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. I'm going to be in this band. I'm going to give everything to this band. And then after four months, we didn't it was have like, any shows. It was like, well, there was going to be a thing in January, but that fell through. And I remember being on the phone with you and you being like, well, maybe you should try to do some things that aren't MC Lars for a while. Yeah. And then I was like, well, well what do I do now? That's I true. think it was a similar situation. It was like, there was a point where I could have, where, where I, there was a selfish reaction of like, but I thought you were supposed to take me with you on this thing because we have this history. Right, right. But then I had to be able to step back from and be like, but is that the right answer? Right. Is it worth me saying, take me with you, even if it means you can't financially sustain yourself? <laughs> right. Then everybody loses. You know what I mean? Like, I yeah, don't want fair. you, that's I don't fair. want you to not do your thing. Right. And although I, I want to be, Although I'd like to feel like I'm an integral part of it, it's not fair for me to raise myself above the thing that I thought was great to begin with. And I don't want to mess with the thing Mm. that I thought was great to begin with. And so I had that happen two times in a row. And so I continued trying to figure out, you know, at 34 years old, like, well, I'm starting a new career from scratch. Like, what am I going to do? Ultimately, by being forced to find that out on my own, I feel like if we get back together now, I actually bring a lot more to it. And the upside is that we can work together now because we want to, Mm -hmm. if we want to, when we want to. Mm -hmm. And it's not a, man, I really need us to do this because I need money. That's (laughs) not a decision in the same way that earlier with the label. Yeah. It's, it doesn't become that it becomes a pure thing. And that actually gives the ability to have, to have what could be created is so much better. It's like when your relationship, when you and your partner are happy spending time away, happy, you know, doing your own thing, and then when you get together, it's great. Yeah, you're, because it's not right. like you're I can right. only be happy if you're with me. It That's has to be. Yeah, it has to be a thing. And I was feeling like, I'm sorry if you if I ever hurt your feelings. Well, it, it. But again, it was like I don't. I think at the time. I really think at the time, all of us were like, what are we going to do now? You mean John and... It's just everybody. And you... I was too. Yeah. Because you know what? It was like Warp Tour. We did Warp Tour. We did the MC Chris Tour. Less than Jake was maybe going to take us out. I switched management. You, you switched management a couple times. Yeah. And so in all of that, it was like, you know... It was like my... my so this is why it was always confusing because I was like, okay... How do I grow MC Lars and also keep it authentic as yes. I enter my late 20s and 
and everything and as we see what warp tour can do and yeah so i was like okay i do lit hop stuff okay i work on this kid show which that stuff's still working on that okay i do this and that and it was always just kind of like or seeing what had happened with her was like oh or you you do rock music and sign to a major label and that's a way to get big and i was like well that's not what's going to happen with me because my strengths are like the quirky satire and like it's not pop in a way that she was able to be and that's why I always loved her music was because it was different and smart and special. So it always it felt like I lost a little sister, and and we've been in touch and we've had nice emails over the years. And you know, I just think, yeah, when I let go of that part of myself, where it was like you were supposed to, you know, we were supposed to be a team. I gave you yeah. these opportunities. We, I, I don't know, man. I think that's like a letting go is such a beautiful thing people on twitter always say you should do more stuff with her did you know she's doing this you should tour with her and it's a little bit like i'll never be salty about it and never be negative or never be angry at her it just makes me feel sometimes like not by her but used by the mechanics and the uncaring like darwinian nature of the music industry. yeah but at the same time it's not her fault but and at the same time her route to the way that she can become the best version of her is not necessarily the same route where you can become the best version of you. That's brilliant. And in the same way that I felt like you being an amazing musician tour manager. Thank you. Yeah. But it's the same way. It's like, look, what I really have at that, it, it, everything is, is time and situation dependent at that time. Would I really have added anything to the degree that I would have helped this thing if I if I say I care about the thing and I mean I care about the thing. If I say I love you and I love Christine and I want you guys to be successful and then I say look even though it doesn't make sense I need you to involve me in this. That's like that's a statement that contradicts itself. And I have to be able to say like in the same way it's like I have to know that I can make it that I can make a career on my own so that I can add something to you without being a drain and the 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 way that christine has come into her own as her own artist and the things that she talks about and the things that she goes for from a perspective that only she could really give and that like we are, are not we're not really in a position and to add to that into it the pain yeah it's like she's becoming her best version and Maybe someday down the road, who knows, maybe someday down the road we all get together and have a big picnic and it's great, but it's like we come down more fully realized together and then we have more to add to that together. But right. it's... I, I mean, you know, it's, I don't know if this is like the secret and it's like you sabotage yourself. It's like, I don't... When someone doesn't re- make the effort to like reach out because they're real busy, you don't really want to make that effort either. I And I get that. And there was one specific moment that happened when that was happening, when she was getting like courted by labels. And mm-hmm. I had, I, I, I had helped her get to the city and helped her get to some of these things. And then like, she was whisked away by these labels and afterwards. You're not living in the city. You've and, and an effort yeah, city. you know, I drove a hundred miles down, tried to help her get to her thing. And then she's whisked off and it's like, Oh, but you're not coming along too. There was a moment that like, personally, I felt like, Oh, that kind of sucks. But then I think about it, and I'm like, man, if I was in her position, and that had to have been overwhelming, like, what happens when all of a sudden everybody's like, I got you here. Yeah, so it, it, you know, it's, how would anybody react? How would I have reacted to it? I don't know that I would have done it any better. Sure. And I, I'm 10 years older than her, you and, know what I mean? Yeah, like, and, I've, and I've had awkward things like that, and I guess the thing I come to 
this is the thing that's like a, such a spiritual growth moment. You be, I, I get to the point where I'm like, um, you know what? If I'd never been in her life and she hadn't been in mine, maybe she would have gotten signed and had her Grammy nominations without me. Yeah. Maybe not the same path, yeah. maybe later. And, you know, so it's, it's a selfish thing to be like, well, yeah, some people just, they'll have another path. Who knows? And that's a lot of, for me, it's been a lot of through my like sobriety and working on myself and spirituality is being like, you got to let go of ego yeah. and, think of, and let go of all that. But the music industry is based on ego. It and is. That's why it's like, sometimes I just feel like, God, I just want to go move to a cabin and paint because it's like, yeah well in current culture seems to really encourage encourage people that are basically bragging and and, and the fact not, that they're bragging yeah. without enough to 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 back it without you know they're portraying an image of themselves that is untrue and that's like affecting affecting depression and things and all these other people who are looking at these things and being like well my life isn't like this you know? I don't have those spots. Yeah, but, but it's like, but then what's going to come next, what's going to really resonate is going to be the artists. It's like, why did Adele stick out amongst all these crappy pop? Because she, all of a sudden, here came somebody who could really sing. Right. She was singing about something very specific that really resonated with people. It's like, those things look like like the, the, med, the unicorn metaphor. Well, where did that come from? And then they'll say, well, maybe the industry is moving in this way. It's like, no, the industry is reacting to one thing that was special and that hit a thing. And if you have that, no matter what you are, if you have that, everybody will turn to you and all of the industry trends become meaningless. And here's, dude, that's so, uh, you're so wise, Mike. You're like Yoda. It's like, <laughs> except you speak grammatically in a way I get. Thank you. Um, uh, <laughs> thing that I also learned from you, and this is something that, is so helpful. And for anyone listening who's a creator who feels like stagnant or frustrated, know that you're the youngest you're ever going to be right now. Yeah. When I was 22, I was like, oh man, Snoop was 19 when he did Doggy Style. It's over. That was always a toxic mentality. When I was 24, I was like, oh man, Kurt did, did never mind at this yeah. point. Now I'm 36. I'm like, mm, I still have some of my best songs in me. Oh, my yeah. best albums, my best literature raps, my best like whatever I end up doing with multimedia stuff for kids. Yeah. That's still in me. And as soon as I get scared that it's not, that I have to give it up is when my soul dies. Yes. And so you need to remind yourself that like, whether that's like spiritual stuff, like whatever you call God or faith or humanity, that there are artists who just get better and create more meaningful art. And there's not a clock. And that clock is created by like mainstream capitalism and the idea that like, Yes, young people trend, and yes, beautiful Ariana Grande pop stars trend, and that's what's popular because it looks and sounds good. But she's been through hell and back. Her yeah. boyfriend overdosed. She was had a terrorist attack at her concert. That woman yeah. is a great artist because of the hardships that that could happen at any age. Yeah, and that's and what defines us. So that therefore, I wanted to end. We're talking about the current artists you've been working with a lot. Mm -hmm. Sometimes time is an asset. Yeah. And if you don't let yourself panic and don't check your homies, count your homies' pockets and look behind your shoulder, yes, it might hurt when you don't hang out with a friend from college when they have commercial success, but that doesn't mean you suck and it doesn't mean you don't have like beautiful, brilliant 
pockets of light inside of your soul yeah. to s- disseminate through whatever way. And that's the nature of art. And that's something you've helped me realize. I'm so grateful for our friendship. Thank you so much. For that point. It makes Very much so. Emotional, but Very much so. I yeah. mean, it's, I can't, I, I've come to a lot of interesting conclusions over, over the years. One of them is that I have been lucky to be around some incredibly creative and talented people. And you are one of my all time favorite people of anything in every, in any way, both as a person and as a creator and as a performer. And it, it made me realize a couple things. One, it made me realize that I am not that person, that I'm a good support person, but I am not that generator. And so I am incredibly drawn to and incredibly, in awe of people that can create these ideas out of whole cloth or that at least it appears to me like they're creating them out of whole cloth. And, you know, when we finally did Warp Tour, when I left, I was 34 years old. I was too old to play Warp Tour then. But you know what? We rehearsed today for our show tomorrow, and I had as much fun as I've ever had just in a rehearsal. Yeah. It does it it does not matter to me whether one person comes tomorrow or whether a thousand people come like We this, sounded good tonight. We did sound good. But this route of of music and this career, as I'm looking at the people that I've been able to interact around who have so much more talent than me, they have what this has afforded me is as I look backwards at a path that when I started seemed like it was winding, but when you look backwards, it looks like a straight line that could only have happened. Things can only have happened the way they did this. Ultimately, the older I get, the more I just cherish experiences. And I think that this kind of music and this path and anybody can do this in anything that they do. It's like, if you look at it and don't worry about, like, I don't want to say to myself, man, I was almost a major label band. I want to think about right. in the time we were doing that, we traveled all these places. We shared late night diner trips together. Trying we had all these girls. little, yeah. yeah. And then when I was out with you, it was like, here we are rolling around the country. The irony of it is that I thought the only way you could get to become a touring musician was if you followed this major label path. And when that failed, then I got a call that to me felt out of nowhere and I found myself touring nationally with somebody in a way that I could have never anticipated and I tried to work the, I don't know when my luck will come up, but I will try to be ready for it if it does. That is like the epitome of that to me. You know, I look at what may have looked to you as like a convenient way to to have somebody step in when your guitarist bails. For me, it was like this is my chance to do something that I've always wanted. Me. Yeah, yeah, that I've always wanted to do. And so, and you deliver, and you learn the songs, and you very, very badass, and you just got better. Well, you got you. more tasteful because yeah, because it, I'm not like I'm finally as, able to do this, and so I'm just like going uh, as did I because my you know often when I was rapping, I had bad breath breath control, and I learned tone, I learned nuance i learned dynamics at the time i played like my hair looked (laughs) (laughs) we ribbed you for that on that song but you ended up working with this guy david bromberg who you still tour with i do and so we i'm gonna try to wrap it like just a few more minutes because we're out oh yeah two hours but um you how'd you how'd you link up with david and like I'll give some of the background on him real quick because I just okay, know sure. David Bromberg is a folk artist who does fingerstyle playing and sings 
mm-hmm. and he's worked with Harrison and Dylan. Yeah, and he's had a lot of his own hits. Yeah, he was essentially he was on he Mark was, Maron's he was a, podcast. Recently. He was Americana before Americana was a thing. He was the first person that really he was Mumford and Sons' dad, much cooler dad. Yeah, and you but know in but the he, legacy. Like, he did. He, he compared. He he combined like a million styles of music into one and was really just as comfortable doing like a rock song, which is what he wrote with George Harrison to doing like Irish fiddle tunes to doing traditional folk stuff to um, being a session guitar player who sat in and played on everything from like Willie Nelson records to Rick Derringer's rock and roll hoochie cooch to um, he played on that. He did. Do you to, know Derringer um, did Weird Al's first records. Really, he produced them. Yeah, so it's a small. It's, it's the world's getting smaller. Yeah, and and but what's interesting about David is that you know he was getting to a, be a pretty big touring name, and then in 1980 he retired for like 20 years and 20. lost like three generations of music listeners and came back in his 50s and 60s. And now at 73 is still playing, still making records. We get to travel the world together. We get to, you know, it is all of the same things, like these experiences that get to happen that it's like there is an audience for it and that allows it to continue. So that is great. But really it's also for me personally, who again, I'm like, I'm around the creatives but I'm not nest. I'm not the generator of the you creativity. You play with them occasionally. I do. I do yeah. sometimes. And we, you know, backstage every night we play, and I, yeah. it's, it's made me a much better musician. But like seeing this makes you realize, and the same with listening to these podcasts. Although it's in my best interest to realize this, it seems a lot of people get second and third acts, and an audience who is going through life and dealing with times when they are at times down and out can resonate with people that come back. As long as you are coming back with something worth telling people, sure. something worth sharing, you'll get another chance if what you have is great. And that is being the proof that you're never too old to do it. Uh-huh. And he's what, 73? He's 73 said? now. Jeez, yeah. Louise. And you tour the world, literally. We do. Yeah. Got to go to Italy. Yeah. And, you know, we, could, we, we play these beautiful venues. He sells I, mad tickets. We we meet all these incredible musicians. You meet people that are just playing music because they are musicians and that's what they do. And they accept the fact that the career goes up and down and up and down. And you just need to live long enough and do it long enough to appreciate that when you hit your first trough, it's not the end of the line. You need to wait it out enough to be right. like, oh, this is a roller coaster. And if you just accept that and then go, well, you know what? These experiences along the way are payment in and of themselves. You can have quite a career. I don't know. Did you hear the new Fred Fury ICP record parts I, of it? I did. There's a song on it. I think it's the standout song. It's called Satellite. Yes. And it's about Jay. He did his motivational speech at the Gathering of the Juggalos last year. It's about satelliting, meaning mm. you go back and yeah. you see those ups and downs become just divots. And so he also talked about you jettison the weight of people who tell you to doubt yourself. Yes. So that's Absolutely. important too, dude. Having people who are ride or die in your life who believe in you. And you you are a small handful of friends who like you, DJ, Tim, John, I get, and Rob, I guess, are like my musician friends who have helped me satellite. 
Yeah. And, and you're like that. You're, you're in David's team. You said that they really value you. I feel like it, and I value them for all the same reasons. You know, you, you all... You all get your own hotel rooms every night so you don't <laughs> well, have we to do. kill each other. So, which is nice. Yeah. And, but I mean, it's like all of you, you and them and anybody that I've been able to, to really be around just reminds me that like this is still the best way to try to stumble through this world. And that if you find the right people to be with in it, even just hanging out and doing nothing is like a joy. Right. You, know you said mean? touring is great because you want to go to sleep with all your friends around that's you. right like the jimmy world song it's that is a hundred percent what uh <laughs> what i feel like and it's yeah there's nothing like it you know we were socially awkward well i was socially awkward as a kid i didn't play sports this is as close as i'm getting to go team right and it exists <laughs> it as opposed to me looking back into high school and being like oh those are my best days my old sports days it's like i'm bringing my sports days with me all the time my best days are always still happening and they depend on other people, but they, depend on they also don't depend on other people. That's, you know? that's it. They depend on you having faith in yourself that things are going to be okay and you have something great yeah. to offer. Made it this far. <laughs> yeah, man. I think that's a fun, that's an interesting note to end on. It seems like all the great guests on this podcast are like the quirky weirdos who had like a, who were not the cool kid in high school. Not at think all. Being the cool kid in high school you know, maybe maybe you'll have a beautiful, perfect life, but I think it also can be like being on meth the first twenty years of your life, and then when you turn twenty, all right, no, no more of this. It's like a big hangover, yeah, big letdown. Like, yo, you're not going to be athletic and perfect forever. Yeah, you don't want to. You you don't want to become Springsteen's Glory Days song. You know what I mean? You no. don't want to be like. Yeah. You don't want to be at the bar every weekend being like, well, this is as good as it's going to get. You know, it's like you don't. You want to. You need something to look ahead to, and whether. It's like us that are just ambling through life, doing all kinds of crazy stuff, or it's like pouring your your heart into your family and the next generation, or whatever. Like yeah. you need something that Those is are, forward looking, that is independent of your, that is independent of material needs. That's a good point. Look, families and, and the next generation is a big thing, and as we do these ten year reunion shows of the of the big my big second record, it's like, well, I'm looking back. But in a way where I'm excited about the future, making new music yeah. inspired by this kind of like timeless stuff that we're doing. And that makes me happy. If I were doing these shows, just like the Robot Kill shows strictly with the laptop, same with the Megaran stuff. It was fun because it's doing the old songs, but then doing new stuff with him, doing yeah. new stuff with you guys is like looking forward. And so yeah. that's that's another challenge, right? If you're a musician, people are going to be nostalgic about the first stuff they heard of yours. So you better make sure you still love what you're doing. That's right. Can you bring new information to the table? Can you give somebody that next burst of inspiration? For your third act. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we're all on. We're in it. Mikey, where can fools find you? Box? Um, Twitter? What am I? I'm the danger. No, wait. No, not that. The Twitter thing's kind of dead. Um, I guess I'm on Instagram at the dangerous sacred. The dangerous sacred? Yeah. Um, or on Facebook as me. Mike Russo. <laughs> I think we should end with 1984 because we haven't played that yeah, on the podcast. That'd be awesome. That's let's, a great song. Let's talk about this real quick and then sure. we'll be out. So um, 1984, we, we thought it'd be funny to do an 80s rap kind of track. Yes, so like Rockbox. Rockbox. So you you did a bunch of riffs, right? Yeah. So what was fascinating to me was I just like, I took two hours and I was like, I'm just going to try to write every riff in the key of F sharp minor I can think of. And 
because that's the tr- that's the key that Rockbox was in. Right. And then I'm just going to play noodly solos over it and a couple harmony lines like Rockbox so that it's it it kept that feeling but like you had said like with more Slayer or in my case probably Megadeth like a little yeah. bit more metal vibe to it which is like exactly in mic zone. Right. And um and what was fun was I had no idea how it was going to turn out. I just sent you a glut of stuff. Right. Three and a half minutes of just riffing. Um, and then when I heard what you guys did with it, it was so clever. And so, like, that's the joy of it to me. It's like, oh, I would have never thought of that. Well, I think your you solo know? is so dope oh, at thank the end. You. <laughs> and shout out to Richard, um, Richard Matthew, who did the final arrangement of that. Yes. Such a good ear. Because it was, yeah, he, he blended multiple solo parts together he took that pieces that genius. were not to, yeah like so that's to me that's the essence that's why being in a band is fun that's why being collaborative is fun and in a situation where we can't all be in the room together that was literally the next best thing yeah i know yeah it was uh and you always are so quick and good with your parts oh thank you so, and i saw yeah. i saw somebody wrote <laughs> I can't remember when, when you posted it, somebody's response was, Marty, we have a hit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's like musically, that's my favorite musically track on Dewey Decibel. That was so much fun. So we're going to play it. Check out the video, and if you haven't seen it, and um, it's on Spotify and Mike. You. Yeah. Yes. I think this is the longest podcast oh, no. we've done. You can edit it down. I don't know if I need to edit it. I might a little bit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, follow Mike on Instagram, and that's why he's the dangerous sacred in the liner notes is how I credit his Instagram. So if you kickstarted the record, you could look in there, or you could just type the dangerous sacred. <laughs> but get the record. Come on, people. Yeah, get the record. And go see him on tour with David Bromberg, because y'all are touring. And go see us tomorrow. Well, this is going to be long after. That show was it's great, be, wasn't that's, it? That show in Warp Tour was fantastic. Were Thank so you fun. to everyone. <laughs> Peace.
Mike Russo, music industry legend. Thank you, Mike. Next week, we have another music industry legend. My friend, Will Tattersdale, a.k.a. Faceometer, who you might recognize as the, uh, this is the Dewey Decibel System, British voice on the intro track of the new album. Faceometer is a band I've toured with, uh, a project by the legendary Dr. Will Tattersdale, who teaches at University of Birmingham in England. And he's a published author, a musician, a professor, a guy I met um, when he was in Oxford doing his master's degree, I think I was there doing shows and I met him at a show. He gave me his music, thought it was very original. We collaborated and we talked about the balance of being an academic and an indie musician in England. Great interview. Great guy. Will's awesome. So tune in next week, episode 49. Please leave a review. Please leave a comment. Please tell your friends. And uh, thanks for listening. This has been a great episode. All right. Hope you're all having a good summer. Talk to you soon. Bye.